1: Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call
0: 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. Only at sleepnumber stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Support for Truth and Movies comes from Sundance Institute and the Sundance Film Festival, returning January 24th through February 3rd in Park City, Salt Lake City, and Sundance Resort. Discover the 2019 lineup including world premiere films, VR experiences, panels and more at sundance.org/festival. This week on Truth and Movies, Alfonso Cuaron's monumental Mexican drama, Roma. The latest from Danish provocateur Lars von Trier, The House That Jack Built.
0: You are Mr. Sophistication, aren't you?
1: If you feel like screaming,
3: I definitely think that you should.
1: And Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie. Is it a lost masterpiece or an indulgent dud?
4: When I squeeze off a couple of shots at you, you take it, hit it and hit it hard.
0: I want balls when you die.
1: All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So it's a busy Christmas period, so we're in a, the Annex recording room, a very cosy one. It's Michael Leder here sitting with head honcho of Little White Lies, David Jenkins. Hey, hey. And Matt Thrift. Hello. Welcome back, Matt. Thanks. How are we all doing this good. December afternoon?
4: Not too bad, I'm not good. too bad. Putting the finishing touches to our January-February issue of the magazine, Ooh. which goes to press... In two days from the time that I am saying this. No spoilers about what no spoilers about what the film is, no no. It'll be it'll be announced in, in, in due course. Oh keep an eye on it. It's, a, good, that it's a really good one. Good Ooh. film and good issue, I think. Oh wow. So double whammy. Double whammy, yeah. Oh, they're all
1: bangers, aren't they? So you'll announce that on the usual channels? Yeah. That's LW Lies, LW Indeed. Yeah. Keep our <laughs> eyes peeled. Uh, We have quite a good week for movies this week, all big films. We do, yeah. We should crack on, shouldn't we? If it's too much of a love-in, I think we should sort of try and tone it down. And always there's comments on Twitter or wherever. (laughs) Let's start off with Alfonso Cuaron and Roma. Director Alfonso Cuaron recreates 1970s Mexico in black and white in this semi-autobiographical tribute to the young woman who raised him. Set against a backdrop of simmering social unrest, Roma follows Cleo, a domestic worker living with a middle-class family in Mexico City, and develops into an ambitious, vivid evocation of a time and a country. It premiered in Venice back in August, and it's on Netflix worldwide from this weekend. It's also the current Little White Lies cover film. So, David, are you a fan of this movie?
4: Yeah, I think I, I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'd probably say it's my favourite thing I've seen this year. It was a real pleasure to catch a kind of early press screening of it when we are in this kind of process of trying to decide what film we were going to put on the cover of the magazine and, and having this kind of opportunity to to see it shorn of any context and mm. prior to it playing in Venice and getting this kind of extraordinary reception from the kind of global press corps. And just sort of, like, seeing it and then sort of stumbling out onto Dean Street in Soho and just, I looked at my phone and I had these, like, messages from my colleagues, Adam and Hannah, who were just keen to know how it was and I was just like, I need a moment, you know, <laughs> let me to gather my thoughts and, uh, you know, it sounds like, again, like I'm hyping it, but it really is something special. I mean, to give some context here, Quaron is a director who is kind of, he is working in the mainstream, I guess, and he is making these dramas that, I guess, you know, should be seen by a mass audience. But there's always something quirky and personal mm. about them. They don't really pander to, I guess, generic confines or they're, or they're certainly toying with ideas of, of, of convention. Gravity, which was his previous film, you know, it was a sci-fi movie, but I think it, it kind of took the idea of what sci-fi is and re- totally recalibrated it mm. into something else. Same, same with, um, with Children of Men, which was his film before that which was a kind of, again, another sort of sci-fi dystopia movie but he somehow kind of smashed it together with this very, like almost like kitchen sink realist drama as well. But this new film is like, it's a kind of dream project. He's been given clearly a massive amount of freedom to tell this very personal story about his life but he does so in a way that's very kind of giving and very open and and surprising and dramatic and... One of the things I love about this film that it doesn't start with an intertitle that says this is a true story mm. because it's it's a film that like where he he knows that by watching it, if you can't tell then he hasn't done it right, and I think you can absolutely tell that this is you know ripped from his his soul from his memory banks the you know the images you see are just coming directly from his mind, mm. but yeah, as you say it's a film about his that chronicles the life a year in the life of his maid. I think it just is a film that as with these other films it just doesn't take an expected route in how it shows uh, world events and how it how it kind of connects the personal to the political and 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 how it looks at class division and femininity
1: and gender mm-hmm. and things like that so Yeah, I love it. Yeah, you mentioned watching it shorn of expectations. But even now, it's hard to really get Mm. a toehold in what this film is. At least Children of Men, Gravity, they were genre movies. They were spectacular movies with stars. This is non-acting you know, cast members here. It's in black and white, it's in Spanish and Mexican Mm. language. It's quite hard to really even... Talk about what it's about, Matt. Would you like to? Yeah, feel that one. Kind of similarly with David.
3: I mean, I saw it pretty early. I don't know if it was before or after Venice. But I, I mean, I hadn't read anything about mm-hmm. it at the time, and all I all I kind of vaguely knew from the kind of tagline that I that I'd read about its making was that it was this autobiographical movie set in the Mexico City of. Quaron's childhood I had no idea that it would feature a female protagonist and so on I thought it would be about him as a young boy Mm -hmm. I mean the the, the kind of first impression was one of of just like absolute sensory overload I mean it made me think while I was watching it and afterwards of a film that's kind of unlike it in every other other way which was when I first saw hard to be a god at the cinema Mm -hmm. and just the kind of tactility and the sort of sensory experience of that is something that Quoran does as well this real kind of specificity of time and place it's just so kind of precise and so Proustian and tactile mm. um, yeah I mean just really really wowed by it um, I mean the, Rome, the Roma thing was was interesting as well because I kind of read since about you know quoran talking about the kind of Italian neorealists and,
0: mm.
3: and kind of how they influenced him But and again so I was expecting this sort of in a way that some of his other films, like uh, Itumama Tambien, is this sort of social, kind of this rallying cry of social injustice. I mean, that's quite a political film. And, and this is as well, but in a different kind of way. I mean, there's a political de- backdrop that's going on that frames the maid's story, Cleo. Mm-hmm. her character, Cleo's story. But I think the real kind of political beauty of this is, is something that's carried through from all of his films, which is the kind of prioritising of of this character's subjectivity. And I think it's something he's done, you know, all the way through his career, that whether it's the, the little kids in A Little Princess or the Harry Potter films, right the way through to this, which is, you know, by the way that he places these characters within their surroundings, within the frame, against the backdrop, and the way these characters relate to each other, it kind of really gives voice to characters that aren't necessarily prioritised elsewhere and I think it's something he does really, really beautifully.
1: I think there's a danger with a film like this. You hear personal semi-autobiographical black and white projects from a Hollywood filmmaker. You think this would be small scale but this is certainly made by a spectacular filmmaker at the top of his game, craft-wise, right?
4: I think this is what's so remarkable about the film is that I think he has taken what is on paper a small scale subject and could very easily have been a small scale film and made it into this gigantic epic which does hark back to maybe people like like directors like like italian directors Mm. like visconti and fellini and you know it's all about the detail and the context there's an amazing sequence in it maybe some people have have talked about it in a critical way where cleo is out shopping during a a student protest Mm -hmm. And the the scene kind of starts and she's driving with um, the kind of grandmother of the house that she, uh, in which she works uh, through this busy road. And, you know, there's tailbacks because there's all these people milling around in the street. And you see the, the the student protesters, but you also see these kind of jackbooted policemen as well. And there's a sort of portentous sense of, you know, there's going to be some bad stuff happening. Mm-hmm. But as you say, Matt, it's all about like Quoron never thinks oh this is a bigger more important thing this is what I should be talking about I should be talking about political upheaval in Mexico City he's like no this we're going to show it from her perspective it's a thing that's kind of mysterious she's kind of disconnected to it it's just happening in the background and she just experiences this one very kind of visceral thing that happens Mm. and and it's kind of amazing to, you kind of seeing this thing that would in other films would be the subject of the film mm-hmm. and it's just happening in the background yeah it's just a thing that is is, is there that she sees from a certain vantage mm-hmm. and it's just it's just really there there are just so many moments where he doesn't cop out to mm-hmm. that kind of stuff
3: and there's real restraint i think as well this kind of i mean you expect <clears throat> one of my expectations of the film haven't you know on the back of Children of Men and Gravity, which, you know, really do show some kind of tour de force directorial showboating, mm. was expecting a lot of these, you know, some 15 minute tracking mm. shots that would be more about Quaron's filmmaking skills. than. It, and he really kind of sublimates that and dials it down. And, you know, while it is, of course, incredibly impressive in a visual and formal sense, none of it is about him as a filmmaker. All Mm -hmm. of that is subjugated to Cleo's perspective and her subjective reality. But
1: so much of that is still there. It's still there, that's it. That sequence you talk about, David, not to get into specifics, but, for example, with Hollywood movies, people talk about Marvel movies uh, shot in a car park on a back lot. This film feels like it's shot in a living, breathing city. You go into shops, you go Mm -hmm. upstairs, you look out the window, you can see a full teeming city outside
4: I mean this is the thing I mean it's like the magic of this movie is that he has prized the job of the production designer on a par with the cinematographer Mm. and I think that that relationship is so often skewed towards cinematographer Mm. and like let's get the visuals and we can fill it in later rather Mm. than let's actually get the thing sorted first I mean he was his own cinematographer on Mm. on the film Mm. But I guess one of the things to add also, I think we're sort of taking it in a direction where we're making it sound like quite an academic film and quite a sort of like maybe a bit of a hard slog and and, and quite sort of serious. And the thing that makes this so great is it's absolutely not that Mm -hmm. film that, you, you know, I think maybe you have to sit with it for like maybe 30, 40 minutes to actually get into its rhythms but once you do it it just hits you like it's just it lands some major sort of sucker punches it really does in the second half
1: there's one scene in particular i know that we've spoken yeah, about yeah yeah there's a, yeah. there's a,
4: there's, a, there's a few that just really knock you out. But I then mean, there are
1: humorous scenes as well. Very early in the film, the father of the household comes home and it's seen as this big moment of ceremony. Dad's home. And mm-hmm. he's got this huge American car that he's trying to cram into <laughs> this tiny Mexican carport. And it's 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 just it's staged almost like a like the docking secrets in 2001 mm-hmm. or something. It's, but it's hilarious it, as it, well.
4: And yeah, and even that you kind of think, oh, is this some commentary on like American <laughs> political influence in Latin mm-hmm. America? And it's like, no, it's just a stupid, funny, mm-hmm.
3: match. Sequence, you yeah. Know? Um, and, yeah, and it also takes you know melodrama, and it kind of kept wrong-footing me while I was watching it as well. I thought we were we were about to go into kind of prime women's picture territory mm-hmm. or melodramatic territory, and it it really kind of while sort of flirting with those conventions, again just keeps coming back to Cleo's perspective. He's not making a melodramatic movie. He's not making a women's picture because it all just dials back to mm-hmm. her. Experience through the film and through the world. Yeah. I think there are so many similar films where you, you watch it and you
4: feel, OK, we've got a director who's like this Machiavellian figure who's making their character suffer for, for the pleasure of the audience or to get a rise out of the audience. So it's like, we're going to spend 90 minutes with this person and they're just going to suffer and you're going to feel bad for them. And with this film, I think Cleo, she does suffer in certain mm. ways. But I think the greatness is that you never feel like it's a person behind the camera and making her suffer, that it's entirely organic, that it's completely in keeping with the world of the film. Mm. You never feel Koron as, like, the puppet master, you know? Mm. So, Yeah amazing
1: and maybe to wrap up it's an old becoming a tired conversation really but it's appropriate since this is the weekend that Roma is premiering on on Netflix this is a movie we're talking about on the scale of feature filmmaking craft is it something that translates well to the streaming platform? Watching on your laptop, on your telly, et cetera?
3: I mean, I haven't seen it on my TV yet. I mean, I will watch it again this weekend. Mm-hmm. But yes, absolutely. I mean, the sound design in this film is, is incredible and the sound mix on this film is incredible. And in the cinema, in the screening room that we that I saw it in, I mean, it really added to the experience, I guess, but... I mean, he's been making sure that when he's been
4: screening it in cinemas... <laughs> That it's had, like, Dolby. Atmos, yeah. Because that's how, you
3: know, that's the sound mix. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, you know, this movie wouldn't exist without exactly. without Netflix. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if the choice that I have is between, you know, not seeing this in a cinema because nobody would give him the 10 million or whatever it costs to make it, or having the movie exist but having to watch it at home, then, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's a no-brainer.
1: Terrific. That's... Give Roma some scores then. David, I'll come to you first. Is it in anticipation, enjoyment in retrospect?
4: I loved Gravity and I was less in love with um, Children of Men. But I've loved lots of his past films. But I I don't think I would have ever thought of Quaron as someone who was going to... If you talked to me at the start of the year about what you were most excited about, I don't necessarily think Quaron would have been in the mix, really, Mm -hmm. for me. I mean... So, yeah, my anticipation was a little bit more muted, probably, like, on the sort of three, four, more than the the five. But in terms of, like, enjoyment and in retrospect, it's, like, top marks. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, like, you know, knockout, big time.
3: Matt? Yeah, I mean, what's this is the second time that quaron has been to Hollywood and then pulled himself back from the brink. You know, The Great Expectations was a big old disaster for him. And then he returned with Itumama Tambien after that, which I think is... His other truly great, great movie. Again, like David, I mean, I, I liked Children of Men, but Gravity was a, was an absolute knockout. So for to see him, kind of, yeah, I mean, fives all the way for me. I mean, mm-hmm. I just think it was wonderful. And I, after Gravity, and after that, what he did last time, I couldn't wait to see what he was going to do again.
4: Yeah. One thing to add, actually, is that I think it's quite interesting is maybe to in, in retrospect score to add that. I do wonder if the success of this film, certainly in the award circuit, we'll never know how it's done commercially, but is this going to be the rebirth of personal filmmaking, Mm. where Hollywood gives big chunks of money to maverick types to make their dream projects? And, I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously we're talking about the last last movie movie later, later, which is an example of that kind of going wrong, I guess.
3: (laughs) Well, I mean, if Netflix keeps pulling these things out of the bag, you know, what choice are they going to... Going to have ultimately, exactly.
1: Well, we'll have to see yeah. about that. But first, we need to tackle Lars von Trier and his latest. Yes. It's the house that Jack built. So, the bad boy of European cinema is back. Yes, it's Lars von Trier, and this is his latest controversy courting creation. Greeted with walkouts and a standing ovation at Cannes, the house that Jack built is a violent, self-reflexive odyssey into the mind and memories of a serial killer. Matt Dillon plays Jack, or is he as he is infamously known as Mr. Sophistication, as his latest victim is about to find out in this clip. You know, I really think I deserve better than this. I'm going
3: to hang on to the keys. It's a bad habit for you to go rushing downstairs every time we start to have have a good time.
1: Right? You're walking without your crutch. And you aren't using it downstairs either. You are Mr. Sophistication, aren't
3: you? If you feel like screaming, I definitely think that you should.
1: So that's Matt Dillon and Riley Keough in a clip from The House That Jack Built. Matt, were you provoked positively, (sighs) negatively by Lars?
3: Gosh, I mean, I was saying to David just before this started, it's, you know, I don't even know where to begin with this one. It's, um, I think it's fantastic. I think it might be Lars von Trier's... Best film. I mean, I know he's been talking in the sort of publicity rounds for this about this being his last film. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that's just more of his kind of P.T. Barnum act that he's throwing at it, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But it does, it certainly has the feeling in, this, in the way a movie like The Turin Horse like, really felt like Bellatar's kind of final statement on what he'd done up to that point. This certainly has that sort of ring of truth about it. I mean, you know, it's difficult, it's challenging. It works within the sort of the confines of a genre movie, a serial killer genre movie that it sort of purports to critique at the same time. But it's also an essay film on the nature of its filmmaker and on the nature of why we're consuming this in the first place, whether there's any value to what we're consuming, whether we should even be in the room doing this. It's so kind of open-ended in what it ask questions but it's also this massively depressing Mm -hmm. film about moral degeneration and failure and depression and the page let all of Lars's themes kind of come, you know it's, it's kind of a diptych with nymphomaniac I think right. as well certainly in a structural sense
1: because they're both sort of chapter based, uh, chapter with, based. A, with an ongoing dialogue narration yeah. between the main character and a sort of confessor psychiatrist Absolutely. type I imagine I know. mean I had a
3: little discovery yesterday. I mean I'd been thinking about this for a while since I first saw it and, um, and I grabbed my copy I hadn't read it for like 20 odd years but grabbed a copy of J.G. Ballard's The Atrocity exhibition yesterday and started kind of rereading that and it's amazing I started googling whether um, whether Lars had spoken about this in any interviews about the film because the similarities the thematic similarities of that novel which is again divided into chapters into segments of this moral degenerate that visits hell and comes back from the brink and, and so on and then I googled to see if there, yeah, so I to see if there were any uh, if he'd mentioned it in any interviews and came across this sketchbook of uh, the British artist David Rodney's, who had drawn some sketches based on Ballard's The Atrocity Exhibition, just turned to the second page, and it was called The House That Jack Built. So I don't know what that actually means, right. whether that kind of really <laughs> feeds into anything, but it was quite a quite a nice... little. So this is one of those films of that will send you off on a, on a voyage of discovery yeah. of,
1: of your own. Did <laughs> that what happened to you, David?
4: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was weird.
1: I, I mean,
4: I saw it in Cairn, all this kind of massive controversy, because... There'd been a kind of world premiere the previous evening and there were sort of hundreds of walkouts and there were even people who had taken the mantle of Moral Guardian to actually stand outside the screening and count the amount of people who Mm -hmm. were walking out so there would be an official number. Like Lars von Trier is someone who I have like grown up with. He was like someone who helped me, I, I guess, discover a certain type of cinema. You know, he's always had these kind of very forceful, transgressive tendencies. I remember reading a review of one of his early films where I think it was in Time Out or something where it said something like, Lars von Trier is a director who, who shakes your seat for a reaction. His films are all about getting a rise out of the audience and making them feel something and making them walk out and you know feel bad, feel good, feel provoked. Mm-hmm. And that it's always happened to me. And I think like a, a film like Dancer in the Dark, I remember from 2000 feeling absolutely like a couple of days after that film I was just in a kind of state of trauma I think mm-hmm. <laughs> to the point where I'm actually like terrified to ever rewatch it but this film yeah I was I, I'd really not liked nymphomaniac at all which as you say is a similar kind of setup it's a dialogue between between two people and Rick and you know the nymphomaniac character relating her her life mm. to this guy who is then kind of imposing his ideas about it and making all these kind of connections to art and literature and, and history. And, I mean, he's pretty much done exactly the same thing with this film in that you've got Jack en route to the bowels of hell with this character called Verge, which is referencing Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. And um, he's telling him about five random incidents in his life, each resulting in a, in a kill, I mm-hmm. think. It's so weird how, like, a film that could be so similar in structure and style and tone. I could love this one and hate that one. (laughs) Everything he got wrong in that one, he just gets, like, with a few small tweaks, he gets right in this one. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating film. Do you think it's a film that you can only really love if you know? about Lars von Trier? Well,
3: I mean, we, we spoke it's a good question. Talking about Roma, you know, as about Quaran sublimating himself as a director, I mean, that is not something that Lars von Trier <laughs> is inclined to do. I mean, he literally puts himself in the movie in, in one sequence. Um, David mentioned about the, his kind of willingness and his, the desire to get a rise out of the audience. But I think there is, at the same time, I mean, there's quite a, maybe a facetious line in the film where Jack says, you know, just don't look at my actions, look at the works. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's kind of a glib, throwaway line. But I think there is a a tendency perhaps to confuse, not confuse, but to to read too much into Lars's kind of carnival barker act when he's selling the movie and counting the people that are coming out of the cinema and just to think that really this is just an act of kind of meta self-reflexive trolling. But I think while that is definitely there and is definitely a part of it there is a really kind of quite serious consideration Mm -hmm. of of the nature of atrocity and how what the what the boundaries of personal or public censorship of a work of art should be what what value there is in atrocity in in all of the things that the the movie purports to discuss
4: when i saw it the second time I kind of almost read the film as a, as a sort of catalogue. I mean, if you look at the actual murders, mm-hmm. each incident is very different. Uh, like, you know, there's one where he's kind of enters into a, quite a long sort of circuitous dialogue with a woman to try and get into her house. Mm-hmm. There's one where he's gathered all these guys together to try and shoot a bullet through all of their skulls. Mm-hmm. And he can't get the focus on the sight right to get the <laughs> shot. And I think the more you think about it, the more that this this film really is about filmmaking, and it's mm-hmm. about the kind of the dangers of making movies, and, and the incidents themselves are like examples of of shooting, of creating dialogue, of creating characters, of looking at families, mm-hmm. of, of making, of creating themes, of creating fear.
3: What uh, sort of extent do you think it's a comment on our? consumption of these types of movies as well then and to what extent do you think the last well, I think kind of it is literally
4: it, the film pretty much states mm. that it is about like how we sort of subjectively view these mm. these things and it's probably worth mentioning that there is a large there are a large contingent of people who really really don't like this yeah. movie mm. and you know what with it being a, a film about a male serial killer who s- kills almost exclusively women and the film highlights this fact that they're quite stupid women mm-hmm. That that has become a thing that people have latched onto, and completely, understandably. But I almost think that
3: the film is it feels so so complex. It's interesting. One and, thing uh, I can't quite get my head around yet, and I've been trying to think through. It's this. Maybe it's a failure of the film that if a film is going to, as much as I love it, is if a film is going to purport to ask us questions of our own the reasons why we would go and see an ultra-violent movie like this and ask us those questions by feeding us that ultra-violence to make us question it. I mean, I think it's quite reductive to think that Jack is Lars, or Lars is Jack, even though obviously there is a part of each other that is that, but also that Lars is Verge, as well, asking these questions of what is happening. But then at the same time, there's this omniscient, omnipresent director, Lars von Trier, that's guiding the camera, that's showing us what we can look at and what we don't. And I think that ultimately Lars von Trier is quite a moralist, quite a conservative moral director, ultimately. I mean, he sends Jack to hell. But yeah, I mean, he's not like De Palma, for example, who I think is a much more amoral director than Lars von Trier, in that he will give you what you came for and not provide a moral safety net for you to to kind of question that he'll just pull it out from under you
1: does that make any sense that makes complete sense but it does there is always this metatextual level of it which no matter how much he is presenting this ultraviolence with the sort of rug pull of aha you came to watch this what did you expect makes me think of Gaspar Noé and Climax these filmmakers who may not pass comments may pass judgment within narratives or within the overarching fictions of their overarching relationship between filmmaker and fiction but there are sequences in this film where you are really reveling in the gore that he's enacting upon his victims
3: but at the same time i think there's real empathy with the suff- you know the reason that the riley um, keogh scene is so horrific and so hard to watch after the sort of more jaunty for want of a better word mm-hmm. killings that precede it that sequence is so tough because it focuses on on her humiliation and on her suffering but not from jack's Perspective it puts mm. us in her shoes, and that's why it's so troubling. I think that's why most of the walkouts presumably happened happen around, happen uh, around uh, that, level, that yeah. point, because we're being and why sh- if we are going to depict violence, then it shouldn't be an easy watch. It shouldn't be. And if we're going to identify, that's the reason people don't walk out of you know Saw 27, where the bloodletting and is so much that's worse. The, that's the thing because I mean, I, I the perspective think people are, is people are walking
4: out not because of the violence, but because the, it avoids of the empathy. With yeah, the, it avoids the yeah because you, you're looking at a real human being character. There's no cartoon, there's mm-hmm. no kind of boilerplate, cliche idea of what a serial killer is, which this, the film just rides off. I mean, it's kind of similar to that movie Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, mm-hmm. which is from, is it late, late 80s? But it, it was it was a really shocking and, and, and radical film when it came out, because it was like... What if a serial killer was actually just a normal guy? And this does this in a a certain way, because I think the things that are... It's like the killing that Jack does is is probably the least interesting Mm -hmm. thing about his personality. Actually, he is riddled with all these other neuroses which which Mm. develop across the film. Where
3: that film, Henry, and I think the De Palma films as well, implicate the viewer in what you're showing without giving you a kind of... An escape us and last is it's kind of self-flagellating in, in him implicating himself rather than implicating you as to why we're being shown, I mean I don't have answers to these but I guess things the loop, loop, just...
4: sorry, I want to look back to something I said before because I, mm-hmm. I didn't really get to finish the thought but about this idea of how people are wagging their finger at this film for doing certain things mm-hmm. and being a certain way and offending them and being offensive I think this all comes back to this idea of it's way too complex to just I don't think you can give it that simpler definition. You can't yeah. just say, this is this binary thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is the one message this film is giving me. And, and that's why it's bad. Absolutely. And that's why I don't like it. I mean, if you, str- if, you, if you can sort of like stomach the violence, then I mean, yeah. give it the benefit of the doubt and sort of try and grapple with... You know, these wider themes, these wider ideas, I mean, structurally, and these other provocations. It is a film
3: that's having a conversation with itself. I mean, in the two characters of Jack and Verge who are, you know, competing facets of Lars von Trier's personality Id. or id, yeah. It's having the conversation with itself that we're kind of having now, I think.
4: And, and Matt Dillon is amazing in it. He is he fantastic. Is you, you mentioned Henry me?
1: Portrait with Sili this is another film that really has a fantastic performance at mm-hmm. the heart of it. But he's not really had a major lead role in a long time right no. Matt Dillon
3: God no I mean nothing in the in the 2000s really that I can think of I mean he has his 80s heyday
1: of and course 90s, and then the there's, there's something and, about Mary yeah, but North I can North. imagine
4: this I mean it's interesting because there was a period around Dogville where Lars von Trier was the kind of oh he's the edgy European guy that I want to get on my CV mm-hmm. and you know he worked with Nicole Kidman and um, Lauren Bacall, Lauren Bacall <laughs> and Ben Gazzara and yeah. you know like you, you've got all this sort of kind of Hollywood royalty working with him so all of a sudden you know I suspect for films like Nymphomaniac and, and House of Jack Belt that he found it much harder to get people to be like yeah I'm, si- I'll sign on to this Lock, Stock and Barrel, mm-hmm. um, I'm happy with everything that's happening here. I mean, you know, he got Shia LaBeouf for infomaniac.: so
1: Well, Uma Thurman returns in this and one Uma Thurman returns.
4: The fact that he got Matt Dillon involved kind of suggests to me that, you know, Dillon was probably looking for something a bit meaty and a bit kind of outre to mm-hmm.
1: spice up his, his his career. Gosh, and boy, does I, it spice it yeah, up. Yeah. <laughs> um, we could talk for hours about this film, clearly, mm. uh, but let's put some scores on it. I'll come to you first, Matt.
3: I guess anticipation three, I mean, I'm always going to be interested in what Lars is doing next, but again, I was a little bit, uh, I wasn't so hot on Nymphomaniac. And I mean, enjoyment, oh, I mean, I don't think enjoyment's even the right word. I mean, I guess, I guess four <laughs> while I was watching it, because I was just constantly trying to work out what it is and what it was doing. And I think I enjoyed it. I would give it a five for enjoyment the second time I watched it, once I kind of, had my footing a little bit better and then retrospect a hard five so i think it's incredible
1: Want to rewatch then david
4: yeah i mean I, i'm always a bit nervous about seeing a last one trier film <laughs> and i didn't like nymphomaniac i didn't like melancholia so i kind of thought that he was like very much off the boil again this with this kind of canned situation where the film was sort of lambasted in this kind of late night premiere that it had i was really not looking forward to mm. seeing it and like the concept of having to go to a film and like, with rock bottom expectations, just knowing it was gonna be bad. I was just, you know, so probably like two or a one. Um, but then the power of cinema, <laughs> t- trademark, CM, comes to the rescue. And uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, you're reminded of, you know, you have to review the film on the screen. You have to look at what's there. And uh, I absolutely loved it. Um, he's back, baby. Um, so yeah, big fives again. Big and
1: fives, handing th- s- them out this week, David. But to add,
4: to add uh, one last little thing. Sorry, I, I know I'm always, I always say to add, and but this is interesting and worthwhile. But I actually went to uh, Copenhagen and spoke to Mister Montreaux. Right. Yes. Uh, about the film, and that by the time you listen to this, it will be up on our website. Terrific. And he, in true form, he says some very provocative things. VPT.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Did you like it, Michael? Um. No, not very much. <laughs> okay. I think my favourite sequence was the OCD filmmaker saying, yeah. "Look how amazing! Look how clean the, the crime scene is to the right. to the policeman." Uh, but I, no, I, but maybe I have to rewatch it. Who knows? But uh, this is we can continue this conversation off okay. mic. perhaps. <laughs> but that was the house that Jack built. Also in cinemas uh, this weekend. The last movie this week is the last movie by Dennis Hopper.
2: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
4: All right, now listen, Dean. This is the death of Billy the Kid. <laughs> I want it legitimate, and different, and better than it's ever been done. When I squeeze off a couple of shots at you, you take it, hit it, and hit it hard. I want balls when you die. All right, let's roll them. All right? Action. What's going on down there? Hell. And that's violence. And people are killing themselves in the streets.
2: Ay, quedarte!
4: And uh, movies have bring here violence, and I don't like it.
1: Shot in Peru, the last movie is ostensibly about a horse wrangler played by Hopper who quits the movie business after an actor is killed in a stunt. But in the edit room, Hopper turned the film into a disjointed experimental head trip that, unlike Easy Rider, failed to set the box office alight. Over the years, its reputation has grown, and a new restoration gives us a chance to assess the last movie anew. So, Matt, you're saying you're a fan of this movie all along? Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, I've watched it, like, three
3: times in the, in as many days. Wow. You're mad. <laughs> I'm a madman. I mean, I think it's, like, one of the new Hollywood masterpieces. When you think about, like, new, new Hollywood, you know, we're talking, what, Bonnie and Clyde in 69? Or was it 68, Bonnie and Clyde? So from, like, Bonnie and Clyde... 67 onwards, really, isn't it? Yeah. And then the, Easy Rider 69. Yeah. And then all the way through to, what, Apocalypse Now, I guess, being the last mm-hmm. big one of that period. I mean there was a huge kind of power shift from the studio system that was churning out kind of a load of staid crap and then these kind of young Turks taking over and doing it their way. But, you know, as many great, great, great movies, The Godfather and so on, that came out of that period, I mean, these are films that still hued to the studio template that was they gave a fresh perspective by mm-hmm. virtue of the fresh voices that were associated with them but these were still traditional storytelling using all of the tools and the playpen of the traditional studio system albeit with new people given money to do it but at the same time there is a there's this kind of small cache of these these films that aren't outsider art you know when i'm not talking like Kenneth Angers and John Waters here, but filmmakers like Monty Hellman Mm -hmm. and Dennis Hopper, and I guess, you know, to an extent, you could probably include Apocalypse Now with that kind of right at the end, who really were using that, what came their way, to do something really quite different and daring and bold. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of the apotheosis of that. I mean, we, we got to see... Orson Welles is the other side of the wind, you know, last month. And while that felt like this kind of explosion of form, you know, Dennis Hopper, I think, did the same sort of thing back then. I mean, the movie wasn't seen for years. I mean, David, you were telling me about the first time you saw yeah, it. Yeah,
4: I mean, the first time I saw it was maybe, I think, in the in like 2007, 2008. We got this random call from someone at the ICA. This mm-hmm. was I was working at Time Out, and they just said we've just found the, the film cans of a copy of the last movie in the bottom of a locker. <laughs> They've been stored really badly, but we're going to give them a kind of run-out just to see what the print looks like. Do you want to come down and, 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 and watch it? And we're like, yeah, sure. So we, it, was, it was just like the four of us down there watching this film. I mean, you said it looked like beetroot, looked like but I, I remember pickled, it looking yeah. like urine. I think it, <laughs> it, was, it, it looked like they'd, someone had like urinated into the film cans and then closed the cans and, and the celluloid had kind of yellowed up. Um, maybe less urine, more kind of tobacco-stained. I remember being completely baffled by it back then. Not necessarily in a bad way, but, um, yeah, it was kind of not similar to any, like anything I'd seen
3: I mean, in a sort of most basic narrative terms, I guess, you know, the movie is about a film crew in Peru that are making a movie directed by Samuel Fuller, who Mm -hmm. I presume is playing himself, Samuel Fuller, for the first sort of half hour or so. And it's all kind of steeped in the sort of the rituals of filmmaking, which is kind of intercut with the rituals of the local people and their religion and processions and so forth. And Dennis Hopper is a is a stuntman. Kansas who's working and just generally getting in the way of Sam Fuller and the film that he's making and that film crew shuts down and just like the beginning of The Wild Bunch where you have that big violent opening and then all the kids just start recreating it with their toys in the sand the local people start fashioning film cameras and lights out of bamboo and go about creating their own rituals and so on based on what they've seen the mm-hmm. film crew doing. So that's kind of on the, the most broadest mm-hmm. narrative level, which doesn't really get you very far with a film And, and like a local
1: this. priest says to Kansas, you've got to come and help them that's it. discern fiction from, re- from fiction from reality. This is,
4: the, this is the weird aspect of the film, I thought. It, it rides on this idea that these kind of Peruvian locals... I mean, maybe maybe you can clarify this, because watching it again, it, it rises on this idea of the locals not having any sense of, uh, of what, what the works. difference between rea- reality and fiction. From watching the Hollywood production being made and people being killed and people being hurt, you know, that's, how, that's actually happening. Mm-hmm. And there's a sequence in the film where he's teaching them how to do, like, stunt punches. Yeah. Like they're, they're actually physically smashing and smashing each other in the face. And he's like, no, no, we don't actually do it for real. But still, there is they kind of turn that into a kind of...
3: Theatre of... Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Theatre of pain, almost. Theatre of pain. I mean, it's, again, I think all of these levels, again, only kind of take you so far because there's this... Pirandello like narrative level that's happening about what they're what they're all actually doing. And then of course you have this all of these themes of, you know, exploitation of an American film studio coming in and using the resources and exploiting them and then the locals seeing the riches that they have and wanting them for themselves. You know, Dennis Hopper finds himself a local girlfriend who suddenly wants a fridge and a fur coat mm. and but again, all of that only takes you so far as well. And I guess if American filmmaking of the 20th century is effectively, especially the Western, is the preeminent means of of myth-making and self-mythologizing in American culture, then this asks all of those questions of that. But again, that only takes you so far as well, because Hopper engages in this formal design, this editing scheme that doesn't allow any of those things to follow through. <laughs> so he's constantly folding it back on itself, these timelines. It's this kind of total immolation of structure and theme. Just when you think you've got a handle on something of what it's saying, it kind of wrong-foots you by trashing what it's said two minutes before. When a cowboy falls to the floor, you don't know if he's been shot for real in the fake movie that's being made or if it's the fake wound and we've jumped back to an earlier scene, and so on. Yeah. So it's, I just to find it so amazing in a purely kind of mm-hmm. sensorial experience. I mean, it's very Goddard. It's, you know, maybe apocryphally, but, you know, Alejandro Jodorowsky kind of famously rubbished his uh, original narrative through-line version mm. of the film that led Dennis Hopper in his, you know, peyote haze to come back and and using all of these music and images and performance music and is fantastic, to create this you know. collage that defies meaning while kind of giving its own meaning to the very possibility of the form and language of cinema itself. And I think it's, on those terms, it's just extraordinary.
1: And so oddly, the most coherent and linear sequence is completely unrelated to everything you're saying where it's a bunch of American expats trying to find gold absolutely <laughs> getting yeah. drunk there, with it's the locals a sub, sub,
4: subplot about <laughs> yeah. like a guy who claims he's a gold prospector and has the deeds for gold mine is trying to sort of sell it to yeah I mean it's, yeah, it's, it's this kind of mad subplot that it kind of keeps reverting to and yeah. uh, I don't know I, I rewatching it I was I, 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 I don't know I think where you may have had that sort of sensorial <laughs> overload I think I was met a bit more with sort of and maybe semi-annoying bafflement and okay. uh, ill-discipline. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I kind of, yeah, I, I, I found it quite repetitive sometimes and um, I was kind of expecting something great, but I, I don't know what, I think, do you know what I think it might be? Is that I recently caught up with the film that he made after. This, Amazing, right? Called Out of the Blue, mm. which, and he. I mean, he was on the, the naughty step for like yeah. a decade after this. And then he came back with this film made in Canada called Out of the Blue. And for me, that film is like... I maybe feel about that film as you feel about this film. I mean, it's just structurally, characters, it all just felt so much tighter. But, I mean, you know, the last movie is massively ambitious. One thing I did think about it is that what it's saying about stepping back and trying to sort of, like, discern its kind of grand themes of cinema as a kind of business... You know, blue-collar artisans Mm. versus like this kind of more spiritual version of people immersing themselves in 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 ideas and theater and and actually becoming this Mm. living, breathing show. I mean, it's a film about the new Hollywood, and it's about this idea of letting go of like you know rejecting the bureaucratic system of of old Hollywood and and embracing this new thing, but also saying, guys, you know, let's just have fun while we can because it's not going to work. Absolutely, and I think the fact that the film died is almost like poetic in a
3: way (laughs) because i think it's all of these things i mean i think that ill-disciplined thing is could be totally true but then maybe maybe there is discipline in that look at easy rider that he made before which has a very clear kind of ideological through line uh, speaking of the youth culture and so on that it came out of and this just seems to at every turn just to kind of to stamp out any kind of ideology or any political statement and almost testing the limits of what cinema can do or how cinema can act as a tool for Self-criticism or politics. I mean, it's it's one of the very few auteurist films, I think, that is very much the work of an auteur, but that absolutely attempts to stamp out any auteurist stamp at every mm-hmm. given moment, to remove the director from the equation. I mean, the shifting kind of perspectives and points of view and ideological standpoints that this that it might make at any given moment, again, then are just kind of obliterated mm-hmm. seconds later, and it's not through another ideology it's through the very very fabric of the film itself through its editing through its perspectives through Mm. just all of these things that work together
1: i agree with you david i'd I'd recommend out of the blue before this but if you do watch the last movie i would watch it in dialogue with easy rider because Mm -hmm. almost easy rider and and the last movie are almost different sides of the same coin almost the peter biskind easy riders raging bulls ideal one where it all came together and worked and Mm -hmm. the the one where it didn't work Mm -hmm. there are stories from the set of easy rider where Dennis Hop would go off and shoot hours and hours and hours of Mardi Gras footage for that one sequence mm-hmm. in Easy Riders. And then they'd never be able to cut it together and he'd be delivering various different edits, none yeah. of them which make, made sense. And Peter Fonda would do his own edit, Bob Rafelson would do one. And then you get the same story here with the last movie, but no one else was helping him sort it out. And maybe your mileage varies.
3: Yeah, I mean, he—you beca- know he's his own Colonel Kurtz, you know, mm-hmm. he's like disappearing into his own world or... Ask depending on your perspective, <laughs> I, mean, to, I to, guess, to, to,
4: yeah. to add in the I mean, one of the things to, men- to mention about Hopper and, and, you know, the examples of, of this and, and, and Out of the Blue is that you can't look at screen drunkenness <laughs> <laughs> in the same way after you've seen a Dennis Hopper drunken scene. I mean, like, he's either the greatest interpreter of, of false fake alcoholism in the history of art or... He was absolutely leathered. I mean, he's like pie-eyed throughout this film. You know, it's kind of great because that gives that kind of combustible sense to his character, which is, you know, what the film is kind of built on, really. What was happening on set, I don't know. But, you know, he was famously, you know, he was an alcoholic and he he, he did a lot of drugs and, you know, was kind of unreliable on those terms. So I think they waited like 18 months for the, for that the edit that we finally got. And that went to the Venice Film Festival. I mean, it was a kind of like, we just don't know. <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> Anything could happen here.
1: Well, it's, in, it's incredible that the movie is now restored and available for people amazing.
4: to see. So it's in the cinemas, and I think in the new year there's going to be a, a big,
1: bulky... Mm-hmm. One of those primo like, Blu-ray, Blu-ray boxes as well. Yeah. Well, if you take the plunge with the last movie, let us know what you think. The usual channels at Truth and Movies. Truth and Movies at tcolondon.com or on the... Comments page LW dot com slash podcast. So this is a very busy week for releases, so I know that Matt you have some recommendations for other films to see, other essential movies beyond yeah, the three essential movies we talked about so far.
3: God yeah, there's so much great stuff out this week. Um my the biggest shout-out has got to be for this Chinese movie called An Elephant Sitting Still, mm-hmm. which premiered at Berlin back in February. It was the first film and sadly the last film by its twenty nine year old filmmaker who who killed himself just before the film's premiere. It's a four-hour kind of Dantean nosedive into social and economic grimness, but it's also some of the most remarkable, um, remarkably propulsive-driven filmmaking I've seen in a long time. It's an incredible debut.
1: And you reviewed that for Little Uh, little White yeah. so we can read more of your thoughts on that one. I have one shout-out to make, and it's a complete left turn from everything we've spoken about so far. It's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It's been a fantastic year for superhero movies with Avengers, Infinity War, Black Panther, and so on. And this is an animated movie, Sony animated, animated pictures put it together, which is a... Multiverse crossover with many spider-men but centering on an origin story of miles morales the black latino uh, spider-man wow it looks nothing like an animated film that's coming out of uh, america right now it's told with such brio and with such a, a deafness of humor and everything storytelling now is amazing. amazing wow. um if you are bored of superhero movies i'm not But if you are, this is one to go and check out because it's got such energy and vibrance to it. So should I go and see that instead of Aquaman? Sounds like you should. Judging by the reviews that have just come out today. Go for Into the Spider-Verse. Great. What's happening next week? There are no films next week. It's the end of the year. So we're going to come back with an end of year special with the whole Little White Lies gang, I believe. So tune in then for our films of the year. We'll be looking back and sharing a mince pie or two and maybe some eggnog. Milled wine, etc. And that just leaves me time to say thank you, Matt Thrift, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. And David, thank you for joining me as always. You. See you next week. I have been Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a Seven Digital Production.
2: Confidence starts with loving who you are.